You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Sarah Keating about her short story Metronome, which appears in number 86, the spring 2022 issue of the Review. Sarah Keating is a writer and cultural journalist. Her work has been published in the Irish Times and Banshee, a literary journal. Her short story Mamo was runner up in the Francis McManus Short Story Award 2021 and was broadcast on RTE Radio 1. She was awarded an Arts Council Literature Bursary in 2020 and was Dunleary Rathdown Writer in Residence from 2020 to 2021. Sarah, thank you for joining me on the Dublin Review podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so, Sarah, the piece that you're going to read for us today, Metronome, it appears in the spring 2022 issue of the magazine. Can you give me a little bit of background to this story? Um, it's, uh, I suppose in some ways, it's kind of a dark fairy tale um, about a young girl observing um, her parents' relationship and how that has evolved uh, through music and also, I suppose, how that looks to the outside world. Hmm. It's a very short, short story. So I was wondering, having read it, was it always that short in the crafting of it or was it a much longer piece? No, it was that short. Um, I wrote it really quickly and I sent it to a couple of friends who, you know, they're really good short story writers and short stories are something that I've come relatively recently to. I find myself to be drawn to stories that take much longer to develop. Um, so I sent it to them for their opinion. Um, and as soon as I sent it, I was like, actually, no, I don't really want your opinion. I'm really happy with this as it is. Um, I felt it just needed to do um, or it did what it needed to do in these four small, discrete parts. And I kind of felt like if I was to embellish it anymore, I would have ruined what it was that I was trying to achieve with it. Mm. Yeah. Because there is a feeling that a short story is as long as it needs to be and no longer. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I suppose in some ways I was kind of like, oh, is this what people mean when they say flash fiction? You know, and I was even doing a word count. And I was even Googling how many words in a flash fiction piece. Does it count as a short story? Um, you know, in some ways, sometimes when you're working with something really small and image based, you're kind of even thinking, is this a poem? But I'm not a poet. It's not a poem. But uh, yeah, in the end, I just thought, well, you know, um, George Saunders always talks about the rules of short story writing, but also then that there are no rules and the story is what it what it wants to be at the end of the day. And this just wanted to be a short piece. Mm. Will you read the story first and we will talk a little bit more about it afterwards. Metronome, part one, opus 39, album pour enfant, 1878. Once upon a time, I shared a bed with my mother. She had straight black hair as long as Rapunzel's. One night, the man who loves Tchaikovsky pulled her from the bed by her plait as I held onto her nightdress. My sister in the cot by the wall was crying. Once upon a time, my mother fell down the stairs in the middle of the night. The man who loves Tchaikovsky said she tripped over a toy I had left in the upstairs hallway. My mother has a shiny pink scar that runs wrist to elbow on her forearm like a zip sewn shut. Once upon a time we were driving into town, my mother in the front seat beside the man who loves Tchaikovsky. The car was still moving when he stretched across her and opened the door and pushed her onto the road. My sister and I didn't say anything, and the man who loves Tchaikovsky parked the car and took us in to see his favourite painting in the gallery. 
Once upon a time, the police came to the door when the man who loves Tchaikovsky was in a red, red mood. He took them to his study, where the piano was. I could not hear through the door which voice was his. They all sounded like the man who loves Tchaikovsky. Or maybe none of them did. Once upon a time, my mother asked me if she should leave the man who loves Tchaikovsky. And I said yes, yes, yes. Part 2. Opus 42. Souvenir dans le Chier. 1878. Everybody loves the man who loves Tchaikovsky. He can play the Twelve Seasons on the piano without sheet music and he hosts parties themed around the ballets in winter. Once, he bought tutus for my sister and me and stood us on upturned tea crates in the corner. All night we turned slowly like plastic figures in a music box, dancing with our arms. The man who loves Tchaikovsky has a silver tongue. People lean in to hear him proclaim the end of art, ambition, the civilised world, and they believe him. The man who loves Tchaikovsky has lots of friends. He goes out early in the morning to have breakfast in their hotel rooms, stays out late drinking whiskey in their mansions. He cannot bear the sight of us, he says when he returns. The squalor. The house does not feel like home when the man who loves Tchaikovsky is not there to fill it with his music. My sister and I sit all day at the window in our bedroom overlooking the driveway, waiting for him to come home, for the noise to begin. The man who loves Tchaikovsky loves Tchaikovsky more than any of us. When my mother asks my sister and me about our day in school at the dinner table, he stands and turns the music on the radio up as loud as it will go. The man who loves Tchaikovsky has two faces, like the statue in the entrance to the museum he brings us to on Sundays. The stone profiles are almost identical. My sister and I cannot pinpoint exactly what makes the one that faces the door so expansive and kind, the one that faces into the room so mean and ugly. Part 3. Opus 47. Dusk Fell on the Earth, 1880. The man who loves Tchaikovsky doesn't always love Tchaikovsky. Sometimes he takes the records from their sleeves and breaks them in two. Sometimes the police bring him home and he doesn't use his nice voice when he is talking to them, when he is talking to my mother in front of them. Sometimes he leaves with them again and doesn't come back for days. Even Tchaikovsky hated his wife, the man who loves Tchaikovsky says. She was so disgusting he slept with men and killed himself. The man who loves Tchaikovsky says that everybody knows great men must make their wives suffer. It is a necessary sacrifice. The man who loves Tchaikovsky's friends stop answering the door when he calls in the evenings. Tell the porter not to let him in. The man who loves Tchaikovsky's hands tremble now when he plays the piano. Warming up with a scherzo, he fumbles the scales and hits the keys so hard he breaks a string. He takes a sledgehammer to the piano and carries it to the garden, piece by piece. The man who loves Tchaikovsky wears his tweed suit every day, even though he has nowhere to go. My mother scrubs the vomit from his shirt in the morning before applying her makeup, powdering his fingerprints away. The police find the man who loves Tchaikovsky on the pier, on the railway bridge, in the laneway between the concert hall and the gallery. When they bring him home, my mother puts him to bed like a child. Part 4. Opus 52. All Night Vigil. 1882. The man who loves Tchaikovsky is spotted in the local Tesco in his pyjamas, putting cans of cider and bottles of champagne into a trolley. 
Someone calls my mother, who calls me down from the bedroom and asks me to go with her to find him. The next morning, the Voyevoda comes on the radio and the man who loves Tchaikovsky beats my mother around the head with a metronome. When the ambulance comes, the paramedics take the man who loves Tchaikovsky away as well. The man who loves Tchaikovsky looks small in the hospital bed without his glasses. His silk dressing gown is folded on the bedside locker beside his hard back leather bound scores. My mother sits beside the man who loves Tchaikovsky, keeping vigil, humming the wedding march through broken teeth. Once upon a time, they used to poke a back and forth across the shiny floorboards in his study, my sister lifting and replacing the needle every time the mazurka frenzied to a stop. And that was Sarah Keating reading her story, Metronome, which appeared in number 86, the spring 2022 issue of the Dublin Review. So, Sarah, can we talk a little bit about the narrator in this story? How old is she at the point that she's telling the story and who is she telling the story to? Uh, She's 11 and she's telling the story to herself. Um, I suppose in that way that children have this kind of impulse to create a narrative from to make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Was she always 11 in your mind? Because it strikes me that it's very difficult to write something that's a very adult theme from the point of view of a child and use a child's language. Did you try? I know you say that you wrote it very quickly, yeah. but was she always going to be 11? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, it was always going to be written from that point of view, I suppose, maybe that cusp of understanding or that point where you begin to step outside of the world that you're in um, and putting a, I suppose, putting a shape on experience. So we spoke a little bit about the structure. It's an unusual structure, given that the piece is very, very short, but there's four sections to it. Um, did you write it as a single piece first or did you, was, was it always broken up that way? Um, I did write it as a single piece first, but at the same time, it was also broken up that way in terms of how I could hear it. Um, It's interesting for me, it was so interesting for me to see it um, when I was sent the proof, because um, when I write my paragraphs, I don't format them where they're indented. I leave a space, a, a blank space between them. And that's a really, really important part of the way in which I develop rhythm in a piece. So I'm always I remember the first piece that I had published was in um, Banshee Press last autumn. And I remember wondering, having a conversation with the editor um, about white space. And I really love white space uh, on the page. Um, For me as a reader, it slows me down. It creates a a tempo that's very clear um, in a piece of work. So when I was when I was writing this, um, instead of these indented paragraphs, I had white space, but I always had more white space with a little asterisk in the middle um, that broke up um, these pieces because I feel like they kind of move through different stages of both um, what's happening in the story um, and how that develops into a kind of a, a, a climax, but also how the man who loves Tchaikovsky himself is changing mm. and the girl's, young girl's awareness of how, you know, her own experience, how he looks to the outside world, how that 
outside world begins to change, the messier he gets. And I suppose then what happens within their internal family dynamic. Mm -hmm. Because it is short and with all short stories, you know, you kind of imagine them happening in one day or one incident, whereas this actually spans quite a long period of time. In the first section, we know that the other sister is a baby because she's in the cot. But in the second section, she is a ballerina. So she's standing, she's able to dance and all of that. So it struck me as a very um, useful way very practical way to show the passage of time and also tone shifts, you know, that the narrator is getting older and we can see that. So I thought, yeah, I thought it was a really effective way of doing it. And it doesn't really, it shouldn't really make sense in a piece that's only four pages long, really, that there are four sections to it, but it does seem to work very well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All a bit unconscious, but anyway, anyway, um, yeah. The mother says to the girl at the beginning, should I leave him? And she, you know, without blinking, says, yes, yes, yes. And the mother doesn't leave. And um, I don't particularly I don't like this question, but it's one that's often asked. Why doesn't she leave? Is it fear? Is it love? Because at the very end, she's still with him. Yeah. Um, I suppose in some ways it I mean, it's a very difficult and would be a very individual question, but it is the kind of something that's very much part of the um, the way in which culturally we talk about domestic violence and, you know, why didn't somebody leave if it was that bad? You know, and there are multiple reasons and often it is fear and often it is also love um, because, you know, she is clinging on. He is the man who loves Tchaikovsky. He is persuasive. He is charming. He uh, loves her. They used to dance together and they have children together. So there is I mean, this story is not from the mother's perspective and the daughter only knows what she can see. Um, But I suppose that holds, you know, a good part of that second section is kind of establishing um, the way in which the man or the way in which the man who loves Tchaikovsky is charming and educated and attractive and magnetic. Mm. Um, And that becomes part of it, too. You know, there's only sometimes in the story, you know, that she has to clean. (laughs) We only see that one instance where she has to clean his his shirt. But we see many instances of, you know, in that second part of him doing um, things that that would perhaps make her um, make her want to stay and be part of this. Um, story, be part of this love story. Because everybody loves him. I mean, he doesn't show much love to her or to the children, but everybody yeah. loves him. Even the police love him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was wondering, reading that, do they really love him or they must be aware of what's going on? You know, the narrator, the child says he has two faces, uh, you know, the street angel, house devil type mm-hmm. character. But the police are called to the house and people must know what's going on. Do they just turn a blind eye because he is so charming? Uh, Yes. Um, Yeah. And I think I mean, when just after I'd written the story was when Ashling Murphy was um, murdered. And I remember, you know, so there was a huge um, discussion about violence against women, um, you know, from the microaggressions to domestic violence to the um, statistics in terms of women being murdered by partners, by people they know. 
um, which is obviously kind of the more extreme end of um, things. But a lot of those conversations were about, you know, men saying, well, what can I do? You know, or you can call it, you can call it out or, you know, you can if somebody is harassing somebody on a bus or if your friends are talking about women in a derogatory way. I think there is a long history and still kind of perpetuated today where people kind of think, well, it's not really any of my business. Um, I wouldn't like to get involved in people's private affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and also then when we think culturally, men like the man who loves Tchaikovsky have been celebrated. What I hope to have done in this story is to capture, I suppose, the um, deeper complexity of a question like that. Why doesn't somebody leave? Why does nobody do anything? You mentioned the story Mamo, uh, which what which was one of the winners, runner up prize for the Francis McManus uh, short story competition on RG Radio One last year. And uh, the opening line of that is I'm going to misquote it now, but I cannot stand them, I mm-hmm. think, is the opening line. And um, that line is in this as well. He cannot stand us, you know. So it really jumped out at me because it's such a strong and unnatural taboo thing for a parent to say or a grandparent to say about small children. You know, I suppose the question really is, is that it's not always that easy to like children. I'm just thinking how something else I'm working on it. I think uh, that I'm working on at the moment and it actually is about this idea that we love our children. It's a given. Um, and yet for, for many people, it probably isn't a given or it's really hard to put yourself um, sometimes maybe even emotionally in a place where you can deeply engage with the needs of another human being. And I think the man who loves Tchaikovsky obviously can't, you know, in this story we have, you know, he's unable to be around his around his family. It's much easier to escape into the music, to escape into the world where people just accept him and celebrate him. Um, whereas in your own domestic sphere, um, he kind of has to let his guard down um, because you can't be the man who loves Tchaikovsky all the time. Mm. Um, in the end, the man who loves Tchaikovsky, everything falls apart from him. People stop loving him. Yeah. You know, we're not told why. I presume that they just get browned off with his carry on, yeah. you know. Um, but he kind of becomes a bit of a child because now we see the mother cleaning his vomit and he's having tantrums and he smashes up his favourite toy, the piano. And then he ends up in the hospital after putting her in the hospital as well. But she, um, yeah, it's it's almost like now she has three children. She has to mind him as well. Yeah. Um. And I think I suppose kind of just, you know, you mentioned Mamo as well. And I think um, to a certain degree, these types of emotionally fragile people, to what degree you still carry around the child within you, you know, that because what I really was interested in in this story was the kind of baseness of the man who loves Tchaikovsky's actions versus this kind of high, high elevated cultural pursuit, you know, that that he has, because often people, I think that kind of sense that domestic violence can happen anywhere. He could have been the man who loves sausages. He could have been the man who loves rap music. He could have been any man, really. Um, But I kind of feel like we often don't um, look beyond our maybe our own prejudices or stereotypes to see that actually, no, this could happen in a middle class home where 
people listen to classical music all day long. Mm. It could happen in, you know, really in any home. Yeah, he's quite high minded and his behaviour behind closed doors is not what you expect from somebody who loves Tchaikovsky. Um, Sarah, it's been a pleasure talking to you about Metronome and having you read it. So thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dublin Review podcast. Thank you, Angela. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast presented by Angela Flannery and produced in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The Dublin Review is supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and is published quarterly. For more information or to subscribe, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Dublin Review. <laughs>